We want to continue worshiping by looking at Romans chapter 1. So if you turn to Romans chapter 1, it's good to see all of you this morning. Glad you could be here. We're here to receive some encouragement from God's word because obviously that's why he gave us his word, to encourage us, to help us to see things from his perspective and to point us to Jesus because obviously from God's perspective, that is the only hope we have is in Jesus. Uh, Last week in looking at Revelation, we talked about the fact that whereas things seem to be unraveling around us from God's perspective, they're unfolding. And so you could say that the unfolding of God's plan includes unraveling societies. And this morning I want to talk about, from Romans 1, the reality that there's still hope for unraveling societies in light of what we find in Romans 1. Many many people, many Christians, I'm sure, are wondering, at this point, is there any hope for our country? There's a story about um, a little boy who's playing Little League baseball and uh, someone wanders up and asks the little boy how things were going, and he said, oh, we're, we're losing 18 to nothing. And the man said, wow, you must be really disappointed. And the little boy looked at him and said, no, I'm not disappointed at all. We haven't even batted yet. Which means, yeah, things look pretty bad, but there's still hope because we still get a chance to bat. Well, G.K. Chesterton uh, talked about the fact that from his perspective, as you think about what the Bible says, unless things are really hopeless, hope doesn't function as it should. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. And so hopeless circumstances give us a great opportunity to exercise hope. And that's why Romans 1 is a very, very important passage to look at in light of all that's going on in our country. So let me read for us verses 15 through the end of the chapter this morning. Paul says, beginning in verse 15, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. There are three things that I want us to see this morning. And the first thing is a society that's unraveling or a society in decline rejects moral boundaries, accepts the unnatural, and becomes irrational. I have a long list of things that I could go over this morning, and I bet you could come up with your own long list of things that are going on in our country that fit into those three categories that I just mentioned. You can think about what just recently happened with the uh, death of one of our chief, uh, one of our uh, justices on the Supreme Court. You've got people uh, calling for burning down the Capitol if um, President Trump tries to appoint uh, someone to that position before the election. You've got um, a Netflix movie called Cuties, where you've got 11-year-old girls uh, being displayed in very inappropriate ways. And you've got people that would support the Me Too movement and yet, yet at the same time support those kinds of movies. You've got this Marxist ideology that argues that there are oppressor, uh, there's an oppressor group and then there's oppressed groups. And whatever the oppressor group does must be wrong, and whatever the oppressed groups do must be right. You've got police officers being shot at point-blank range while sitting in their car, and then people protesting in front of the hospital because they're receiving care. Um, You've got a California governor and legislators who enact laws that protect um, people who are taking advantage of underage boys and girls. Um, We live in a a society, in a country where we've denied the existence of God and the dignity of man and the judgment to come and life after death, and we wonder why everyone is just doing what is right in his own eyes. That's the country we live in, and you could add a lot of other things that I didn't even mention to that list, but for time's sake, we won't go on, but it's just a reminder of that is the country we live in at this point in time, and The question is, how does it apply to what we find in Romans chapter 1? Well, this passage can be looked at in two different ways. From one perspective, you can see what Paul says, especially with regard to verses uh, 24 through 32 in that section where he talks about various sins. You can see that as a snapshot of the moral condition of all societies at any point in time. You'll find... Uh, instances of 
uh, perversion and, and homosexuality and all kinds of sin. You'll find that in any society. And the question is why? It's because of a rejection of God. And that's what Paul talks about. Mankind has rejected God. And so in every society, you're going to find these kinds of things. These kinds of sins are the, ref- are the fruit of rejecting God and worshiping the creature or the creation rather than the creator. But there's also another way of looking at this because if you um, look at different ways in which he talks about these sins, you can also see this in terms of not only a snapshot of any society at any point in time through history, you could also see it in terms of a moral decline in societies. And the reason why it can be seen that way is because he doesn't simply talk about these sins being manifested, but he talks about being filled with these kinds of things, such as in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. It seems to speak of, um, in certain situations, even a greater degree of sinfulness. Verse 31 talks about being without understanding, without uh, trustworthiness, uh, without love, without mercy, um, pictures almost a, a greater degree of sinfulness in certain situations. And then even the situation in verse 32, where not only do people commit sin, but they they have parades encouraging people to commit those very sins. They promote uh, openly and without shame sin in a society. We might ask ourselves, how have we seen uh, this play out in our country? Well, if you just think about the last 50 or 60 years or so, uh, you can see how this has happened in our own country. It says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It says God gave them over. The idea of giving over is the idea of handing someone over, just like Judas handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities in betrayal. It's a giving someone over into the power of something or someone else. And it says, in God's judgment, he gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The word for impurity there could be a very, is a very general term in certain senses, but he mentions the fact that their bodies would be dishonored among them, and it oftentimes is connected to sexual immorality, which appears to be the case here as well. And so sexual perversion is where you uh, get off track with the design of something. You basically uh, have something that's being used in a way that's different than what it was first intended. God never intended sex to happen outside of marriage. And so back in the 60s and the 70s, you have uh, people that basically embraced uh, the kind of attitude that Hugh Hefner voiced at one point when he said, sex is a biological function like eating and drinking. So let's forget all the prudery about it and do whatever we feel like doing. And so in the 60s and the 70s, you had the sexual revolution. You had people saying, all that matters is love and we can do what we want. If you look up how they talk about that revolution in the 60s, it talks about how it was typified by a dramatic shift 
and traditional values related to sex and sexuality. Sex became more socially acceptable outside the strict boundaries of heterosexual marriage. And obviously you had decisions, court decisions in our country like Roe versus Wade in 1973 that only made it easier for people to be involved in those kinds of things because they did no longer had to worry as much about what might happen if they did. They could take care of it if there was a problem by going to the abortionist. And so that began in the 60s and the 70s, and then we saw it progress, as a lot of people do when they look at this passage. They see a progression here that can happen when a society, as a society, not just individuals, not just some people, but when we embrace sexual perversion as a society, then all kinds of things begin to happen. And then he talks about the idea of, as a society, embracing not only sexual perversion, but what we could call sexual inversion. An inversion is when you have something that's turned upside down. It's something that's contrary to nature. In verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, which means disgraceful or shameful, intense, agonizing passion. Degrading passions for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural or that which is contrary to nature. Um, Even from the very beginning, there were um, expressions of homosexual activity in our country. But as the years went along and as people began more and more to embrace the new uh, freedom in this area, we began to see our country embrace this legally. Uh, In in 2003, you had Lawrence versus Texas, where it outlawed outlawing homosexuality. And then in Obergefell and Hodges in 2015, we had same-sex marriage as a guaranteed right in our country. So I highlight the legal system because that is society embracing these things. So it's not just individuals doing these things, it's society embracing these things. And that is indicative of a culture that's rapidly in decline and rapidly unraveling. Then if you look at verse 28, it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. When it says they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, the idea is they did not think it was um, a good thing to approve of God and to have any thoughts of God in their minds. And so God gave them an unapproved mind. They rejected the thoughts of God. They rejected any uh, approved thoughts of God. And therefore, God gave them an unapproved mind. Mind. That's what depraved means. It means a mind that is unable to make trustworthy moral judgments and therefore embraces things that are not fitting and not acceptable. Steve Lawson uh, comments on this and he says, In this judgment, Paul writes, God gave them over to a depraved mind. This is the third time they've been given over to their sin. At first, God gave them over to sexual immorality. Then God gave them over to lesbian and homosexual activity. Finally, God gave them over to a depraved mind. This means that their thinking is no longer capable of reasonable thought. 
It means that they are unable to think rationally or logically concerning issues of life. Their mind is rendered incapable of rational thought. They make insane choices that they would have never made otherwise. This exercise of divine justice causes them to sink yet deeper in their sin. Whenever a collective society hits this point, they have sunk to new lows. Their depraved mind causes them to make illogical decisions. This is what we have in the transgender bathroom situation. Is there anything more insane than that? That is a depraved, reprobate mind that is incapable of sound thinking. And who knows what is next? Another illustration of how our thinking has become so uh, warped in various ways. We think about how people are beginning to raise their children. And they don't want to tell their children what kind of uh, gender they are. And so there's an illustration of this in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There's a family there that have, uh, they have two uh, twin boys. And um, one's named Zyler and one's named Caden. And uh, the little boys don't know what they are. They don't know if they're boys or girls or something else. And um, their parents, uh, Nate and Julia, say, you know what? It's for the twins to decide what they are. And they call them, as parents, uh, babies. And they define that as, babies means raising our kids with gender-neutral pronouns. So they, them, their, rather than assigning he, she, him, or her from birth based on their anatomies. So they just call them they and them, and they refuse to identify them according to their anatomy. They will let them decide one day. There's all kinds of ways in which we see depraved thinking, illogical thinking, irrational thinking being exhibited in our society. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is something that Paul actually describes in verses 18 through 23. And it's actually something that was highlighted by Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you may be familiar with her. She recently wrote an article entitled, Are We Living Out Romans 1? And she was once a lesbian and LGBTQ activist. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. And yet she uh, was um, embraced by a pastor and his wife, and she came to Christ. And she says... What I called love for my lesbian partner, God called defilement. When God gives a people over to sin, we seem to go blind and deaf and dumb all at once. She says, in addition to worshiping the creature, homosexuality is also a manifestation of the judgment of God on a rebellious nation. There's nothing more, excuse me, there's nothing innocent or scientifically morally neutral about the growing number of people who call themselves gay. So so what is the issue here? If you look at verse 18, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now the wrath of God is not irrational. It's not God flying off the handle and doing people evil like our anger often and usually is. God's wrath is his punitive justice, his opposition to evil because he's good 
and he's perfect love, and therefore he could do no other as being perfectly good and perfectly loving. That's what is required toward evil if you're perfectly good and perfectly loving. It is to oppose evil and everything that's not loving, and to do it justly, not unjustly, and he does that. His, it's his determination to punish sin. As Charles Hodge said, it's the calm and underlying purpose of the divine mind which ensures that there is a connection between sin and misery. And that's what we see happening in this chapter. We see God giving people over to sin. And therefore, there are different ways to talk about the wrath of God. There's his ultimate wrath in hell. There's the kind of wrath that we see when he judges Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys them. But then there's the kind of wrath here that every sinner experiences where God gives them over to sin. God says, okay, you want sin? I'll give you sin. You think sin is such a great thing? Let me show you just how terrible sin really is, how enslaving, how unsatisfying, how um, how it makes a beast out of people, how it makes animals out of people. Let me just show you. Let me just give you more of what you say you want. And so... It's kind of like if um, I don't have, uh, let's say I'll use, I'll use these. These don't usually break. So um, what, what is holding these glasses up? I am. My, my strength is restraining these glasses from falling. All I have to do for these glasses to fall is to let them go. All I did was I gave these glasses over to the power of gravity. All God has to do for a society to unravel is to give us over to the power of the depravity in our own hearts. All he has to do is let us go. It's like, again, um, Charles Hodge talks about, he says in verse 24, 26, and 28, when it says God gave them over, it's the idea of a judicial a just judgment or abandonment in which there's a withdrawal of the restraints of his providence, a withdrawal of his restraining grace. It's not that God makes people sin. He just stops holding them back, and he lets them see what will happen if they just live like they want to live and do what they want to do. Uh, C.S. Lewis has said, The lost enjoy forever the f- horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Horrible freedom. People clamor for freedom. I just want to do what I want to do. And God says, Don't you know that's a horrible freedom? That brings all kinds of pain and dis- dishonor, depravity, and misery. Well, The point that I want to get to as we wrap up here is the most important point. Even though we should see the reality that our country is embracing um, norms that reject moral boundaries, it it accepts the unnatural, it begins to embrace things that are irrational, and we should connect those to God's judgment. And the judgment of God is based on the fact that we've made an exchange. You you see in verse um, 
25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We, we say, you know, okay, God has given himself to us as a creation. I want to trade God in for the creation. I want to trade the creator in for the creation. I think I'd be happier if I just pursued my happiness in the creation. And so we've made a great exchange, and we start worshiping people and things and possessions and and the world around us, and that exchange is what God is judging. He says, let me show you what happens when you exchange me for what I've created. It results in a society that you won't want to live in very much longer. Um, The good news is this last point. That a society in decline can be transformed by the gospel. Indeed, it can only be transformed by the gospel, but it can be transformed by the gospel. Just think about when Paul is writing. He's writing in the first century. He's writing in, in light of the Roman Empire in the first century. And what was life like for Paul and people in the first century? It's a situation in which fathers had the power to to kill their wives and their children if they wanted to. It was a situation in which infanticide was rampant, divorce was rampant, prostitution was rampant, slavery was rampant, pedophilia was rampant. Indeed, people would go to the Colosseum and other places for entertainment. And that entertainment included watching other people get killed by animals or by other people. Uh, That was a pretty bad situation, a society in which you long to see somebody put to death because it entertains you. But the gospel transformed that situation. Paul preached and taught and planted churches and saw the growth of the church in that situation. So we need not despair when those situations are right in front of us again. Uh, If you look at what life was like during the uh, The American colonies, right before the First Great Awakening, which was in the 1740s, you see a decline in piety, laxity in morals, conflicts and divisions within the the church. You see political uncertainty, economic instability. You see people emphasizing economic success and political developments, uh, championing rational thought, um, moving toward atheism and deism, Unitarianism and universalism. Sounds like our day and time. And yet God brought revival, brought awakening in that very situation. So that's why verses 15 through 17 are so important. Because he says, Paul says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He says, I am ready and eager to preach the gospel to you. And it doesn't matter how bad things are in your church or in your society. I have the answer because God works powerfully through the truth of what he's done in his son. As Hodge again says, the gospel is that in which God works, which he renders efficacious to save. So what needs to happen in our country? The only kind of sin that people are delivered from is 
forgiven sin. You can't be delivered from a sin until it's forgiven, until it's canceled, until uh, God says you're pardoned. It's at that point that that sin can be overcome. And so what do people need? They need to be forgiven. They need to be reconciled to God. And at that point, then the power of sin is broken as well. The penalty of sin is taken care of. The power of sin is broken. And people can begin to live in a manner that pleases God. And so Jesus came, lived the life we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, rose again from the dead, that we might be delivered from the penalty of sin so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be also set free from the power of sin. And so the hope for our society is not in the election. The hope for society is not in police reform or any kind of other reform. Even those things may be important in various ways. But ultimately, the hope that we have is in the gospel because people need to be changed. They need to be set free from their rejection of God, from their worship of the creature, and be reconciled to God. Like Paul could say in another place, the only way that can we can be delivered from the gross exchange where we exchange God for creation is to be redeemed through the great exchange. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5 when it says, He, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So even if you're enslaved to these various kinds of sin, Paul says you can be set free because many of you have been. And Rosaria Butterfield is a great illustration of that, a champion of homosexual rights. And yet after being um, a Christian and set free from that, she could say, as I'm typing these words today, having now walked with my Lord and Savior for 21 years, Romans 1 continues to impact my life. The Bible first confronted me in the welcoming living room of Ken and Floyd Smith, the pastor and pastor's wife who befriended me as their neighbor. Floyd has gone on to be with the Lord, but Ken continues as my father in the Lord, offering frequent counsel and encouragement. Ken Smith just wrote these words in an email to me this morning. We had no idea what all would result from that enjoyable evening there in the Syracuse manse, and it's still resulting She goes on to say, yes, it is still resulting because the word of God is living and active because God's salvation fundamentally changes a person from the root because God changes the affections of our heart and the work of our hands. God can deliver and does deliver people out of homosexuality by the power of his grace and Christ's work on the cross. People like me. There was a a picture that someone painted of a grandfather and his grandson. And they have, uh, they're standing there in their underwear looking at a house that has nothing left but a chimney. It's burnt to the ground. And the little boy is crying. And the grandfather looks down at the child and says, Hush, child, God ain't dead. 
It looks like everything's been burnt to the ground. Everything has unraveled. Everything is terrible and hopeless. It's only hopeless if there is no God. It's only hopeless if there is no Jesus. It's only hopeless if there is no good news. And we have that good news in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help all of us here this morning to really see and believe the sobering truth of where our country is in light of what your word says. And yet, may we also see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. May we also see the real hope that there is for our country and for ourselves in the person of Jesus. Help us to see that there is forgiveness of sin. Help us to see that there is rescue from the enslavement to sin. Help us to see that we have good news to share. Help us to see that there is hope for our country. And it's in the, in the person and in the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.